Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The issue we're analyzing today is, who's the most consequential person of the last thousand years? Spoiler alert, the answer is Christopher Columbus. And by most significant, I mean that he had the biggest impact on all of humanity. Let me explain why. I'm not going to get into whether or not he was a good guy. That's not the point of this episode. Adolf Hitler was probably the worst person who ever walked the face of the earth, but he was easily the most significant person of the 20th century. Hitler had the biggest impact on the world. Obviously, it was all bad, but it was still a huge influence. Some people get upset when others use the term that Columbus discovered America. There were millions of people living here in the Western Hemisphere when Columbus arrived. Further, we know that Leif Erikson and the Vikings arrived about 500 years before Columbus, and some Asians may have arrived on the west coast of the Americas long before Columbus sailed. The critical element is that Columbus showed Europeans that there were vast lands across the Atlantic Ocean and, most importantly, had to get there. So Columbus clearly did not discover the Americas, but he did discover a way for Europeans to get to and from the Western Hemisphere. And it was that discovery that caused the enormous changes throughout the world. Before I proceed, let's go over a few terms I will be using. The Old World and the Eastern Hemisphere are synonymous. Both of those terms encompass Europe, Asia, and Africa. The New World and the Western Hemisphere and the Americas are all synonymous. Those three terms include North America, South America, Central America, and the islands of the Caribbean and the Bahamas. When I refer to Native Americans, I am not just talking about the indigenous people who were living in what would become the United States. I'm talking about all of the natives throughout all of the Americas that were living here when Columbus first arrived. Now that we got that terminology out of the way, who was Columbus? First of all, his real name was Cristoforo Colombo. But to make things easier, I'll call him by the name he's known in English, Christopher Columbus. He was Italian, even though Italy wasn't a unified country at that time. The Genoese dialect of Italian was his native language. He was born in 1451 in Genoa, which is in modern-day Italy, but was a city-state known as the Republic of Genoa at that time. Historians are not sure of his birthday. He died in Valladolid, Spain on May 20, 1506. He was only 54 years old. And those portraits you've seen of Columbus, they're all lies. We don't know what he actually looked like. As far as we can tell, all of the paintings of Christopher Columbus were made after he died by painters who had never even seen him in person. Columbus became a sailor as a young man. He sailed on trading ships throughout the Mediterranean and Aegean seas, and even out into the Atlantic Ocean. There was a famous incident in 1476 when Columbus was on a ship off the coast of Portugal, which was attacked by French privateers. By the way, privateers were essentially legal pirates who were commissioned by a government to act as pirates against other countries. The ship was sunk and Columbus had to swim to shore in Portugal. He stayed in Portugal for years, married a woman named Felipa. They had a son named Diego somewhere around 1480. 
And I say somewhere because we just don't have a lot of details about Columbus's life. We know that he had a second son named Fernando with another woman after his wife died, but he did not marry that other woman. While living in Portugal, he obviously learned to speak Portuguese and sailed on Portuguese ships. In the 1400s, the Portuguese were exploring Africa. It wasn't just for intellectual curiosity. The Portuguese were trying to find a way to Asia. Why was that? Europeans traded a lot with Asia. The trade went to and from Asia through the Middle East on the Silk Road, which, by the way, was not an actual road nor even a single route. Once goods from Asia reached the Middle East, they were then moved on ships in the Mediterranean. Things changed in 1453. Before I go into that, I first have to give you a little background. In its later stages, the Roman Empire was split into two parts. The Western Roman Empire was ruled from Rome, and the Eastern Roman Empire was ruled from Constantinople. The Western Empire fell to the barbarians in the late 400s CE. But the Eastern Roman Empire continued for another thousand years. They called themselves the Roman Empire, but we know them as the Byzantine Empire. In the later stages of its existence, the Byzantine Empire was being whittled down by the Ottoman Empire. By 1453, only the capital of Constantinople remained of the once mighty Byzantine Empire. But the capital finally fell when the Ottomans occupied the city on May 29, 1453. The Ottomans changed the name to Istanbul, which it's known by today in modern Turkey. The Ottomans closed down trade to Europe. Europeans still wanted goods from Asia, so they needed a new way to get there. The Portuguese were already exploring Africa decades before the fall of Constantinople. But the Ottomans' closing of the overland trail routes to Asia made finding a sailing passage to Asia critical. The Portuguese believed that they were on the way to go around the southern part of Africa. Throughout the 1400s, they kept going further and further down the west coast of Africa. Finally, in 1488, Portuguese explorer Bartolomeu Diaz became the first European to round the southern tip of Africa into the Indian Ocean. He didn't go all the way to India, he returned to Portugal. It was not for another 10 years, in May of 1498, that Portuguese captain Vasco da Gama became the first European to reach India by sailing down around the southern part of Africa. How did Bartolomeu Diaz know that he was in the Indian Ocean in 1488? When the sun rose, he could tell which direction was east, where the sun was rising, and he could see that Africa was the opposite direction, meaning it was the west. This meant that he was now on the eastern side of Africa in the Indian Ocean. By the way, most people think that the Cape of Good Hope is Africa's southernmost point. It's not. Cabo das Agulas is the southernmost location in Africa. I have a standard disclaimer in all of my podcast episodes when I am pronouncing words, places, and names in other languages. I know I'm usually butchering the pronunciations. The Cape of Good Hope is more famous than Cabo das Agulas because the Cape of Good Hope is where ships stop traveling south and start traveling eastward below Africa. Originally, Captain Diaz named this the Cape of Storms. The King of Portugal renamed it the Cape of Good Hope to give it a more optimistic image. I've been there to the Cape. 
Diaz was right. It should be named the Cape of Storms. Let's get back to Columbus. There's a common myth that Columbus sailed to prove that the Earth was round. This is BS. For centuries, people knew that the world was round. Columbus wanted to find a new route to Asia by sailing west from Europe. Columbus wasn't the first to come up with this idea. Other people had already considered this. However, they thought that such a voyage was impossible because it was much too far and it couldn't be done because people on the ships would run out of food and water. So why did Columbus think he could make such a voyage? It's because he miscalculated the size of the earth. Columbus thought that the earth was much smaller than it really is. Also, Columbus thought that Asia was much larger than it was. So these two miscalculations made what he thought was the distance from Spain to Asia much smaller. So he believed that ships could reach Asia before they ran out of supplies. Amazingly, and by sheer coincidence, the distance from Spain to the Americas was roughly what Columbus thought the distance would be to reach Asia. In the 1400s, nobody in Europe knew that the Americas existed. It was through sheer luck that Columbus found land approximately where he expected to. It's just that this land was the Western Hemisphere and not Asia. Columbus needed financial backing to undertake his voyage west to Asia. He tried to get a government to supply the ships, sailors, food, and equipment. He first tried to convince the king of Portugal, but the king and his court were not interested. Even though they had not yet reached their destination, the Portuguese were convinced that they had already had the way to sail to Asia by going down around the southern tip of Africa. So, Columbus then asked the sovereigns of France and England. They turned him down also. Then, Columbus pitched his idea to the king and queen of Spain. But the Spanish monarchs were focused on their ongoing war against the Muslims from North Africa, known as the Moors, who had been occupying Spain since the year 711 CE. Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand II were still somewhat interested in Columbus's idea, so they kept him around. Finally, in 1492, the Spanish conquered Granada, the last stronghold of the Moors in Spain. Isabella and Ferdinand now had control of all of Spain, and then they decided to finance Columbus's idea. The next few facts you all know. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And the names of the three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. And I know Nina and Pinta weren't the actual names of the ships. They were nicknames, but that's what they were actually called by Columbus and the crews. The three ships left Spain on August 3. First, they went to the Canary Islands off the coast of Africa to stock up on supplies and then sailed across the Atlantic. On October 12, 1492, Columbus landed in the Bahamas, but we don't know which island. This was an incredible feat. Whatever you might think about Columbus as a person, he was an amazing navigator. He also held his crews together when they were frightened and wanted to turn back. He then visited the islands of Cuba and Hispaniola. That's the island that is now divided between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Columbus's flagship, the Santa Maria, hit some reefs off of modern-day Haiti and was abandoned. Columbus returned to Spain with the Nina and the Pinta. 
He arrived in Spain in triumph, convinced that he had found a way to sail west to Asia. Obviously, we know that he was wrong. Columbus made three more trips to the Western Hemisphere. He never set foot on the North American continent, but did visit South America. I'm not going to spend much time on the details of the four voyages, because what is much more interesting is the enormous effects that Columbus had on all of humanity. The main deed of Columbus is that he showed Europeans that there were enormous lands across the Atlantic Ocean, and he showed the Europeans had to get there and return home. This all started with his second voyage when the king and queen gave him 17 ships and about 1,200 men in 1493. The conquest of the Americas had begun. Before we get into the ramifications of Columbus's four voyages, we have to first examine the question as to why these continents are called North America and South America instead of North Colombia and South Colombia. It's because of another explorer, Amerigo Vespucci, although most English speakers pronounce his first name Amerigo. He was another Italian, but from a different city-state, Florence. We believe that by the 1490s, Vespucci was living in Spain. There's very little evidence about Vespucci's actual voyages to the New World. We don't even know exactly how many times he sailed to the Americas. We do know that he sailed on behalf of Spain and then later Portugal. From what we do know, Vespucci was the first one to understand that the lands found by Columbus were a new continent that nobody in the old world of Asia, Europe, or Africa knew existed. Obviously, it turned out to be two new continents. But who named the continents after Amerigo Vespucci? He did not name the Western Hemisphere after himself. Vespucci simply called it the New World. In 1507, a German map maker named Martin Waldsmuller made a map of the known world. This was the first map to clearly show a separate Western Hemisphere as well as the Pacific Ocean, although it had not yet been named the Pacific Ocean. Up until the time of Columbus's voyages, Europeans thought that the Atlantic Ocean stretched all the way to Asia with the Indian Ocean on the south side of Asia and to the east of Africa. Since it was Vespucci who first understood that these western lands were not Asia, but a separate continent, mapmaker Waldsmuller named the new continent America, a Latinized and female version of his first name, Amerigo or Amerigo. Even though Columbus was wrong in thinking that he had reached Asia, he set into motion drastic changes to the entire world. This phenomenon is known as the Columbian Exchange. That title comes from a book written in 1972 by historian Alfred W. Crosby. That term meant the transfer of people, plants, animals, and diseases between the Eastern Hemisphere and the Western Hemisphere. Since that groundbreaking book in 1972, historians, botanists, epidemiologists, as well as people in many other fields have studied the phenomenon of the Columbian Exchange. I will now explain how the Columbian Exchange affected the Eastern Hemisphere as well as the Western Hemisphere, but I will go beyond that to explain the political and social consequences that exist to this day. First, let's talk about the Columbian Exchange of food items and other plants that went from one side of the world to the other. The following foods were brought from the Eastern Hemisphere to the Americas. Grapes, bananas, 
sugarcane, citrus fruits like oranges, lemons, and limes, coffee beans, apples, carrots, lettuce, cabbage, onion, and soybeans. It's pretty shocking when some of those, like citrus fruits and bananas, they started in the Eastern Hemisphere. Now, the following foods traveled from the Americas to the Old World. Corn, also known as maize, but I'm just going to refer to it as corn. Potatoes, cassava, sweet potatoes, pumpkins, squash, tomatoes, pineapples, avocados, several types of beans, including kidney, navy, and lima beans, peanuts, cacao for chocolate, vanilla, and chili peppers. Think about the effect this has had on so many cultures. Can you imagine Italy without tomatoes or Chinese food without chili peppers? Besides food, there are also some other plants that had a major effect, most notably tobacco, going from the Americas to the Eastern Hemisphere. The Columbian Exchange also involved animals, diseases, and people. I will address those as I discuss the different continents. First, let's take a look at the effects on the Western Hemisphere. The first major consequence Columbus had on the Western Hemisphere is by far the most tragic. European diseases killed approximately 90% of the Native Americans throughout the Western Hemisphere. We only have estimates because we don't know how many people were living in the Americas before 1492, but the percentage of dead is somewhere close to 90%. Think about what an insane figure that is. The Black Death swept through Europe between 1347 and 1351, we only have estimates there, but it's believed that approximately 30% to 60% of all of the Europeans were killed by that plague. It was horrendous and had an enormous effect on human history. But the Black Death wasn't anywhere close to the ravages of European diseases on Native Americans. There were many European diseases which killed the Native Americans, including measles and influenza. But by far... The biggest killer was smallpox. The natives in the Americas had no immunity to these European diseases. And as these poor people died, they could not understand why the Europeans seemed immune to these plagues. There are several theories about why the European diseases were so harsh for the Native Americans. Theory A, the crowded conditions of the Eastern Hemisphere meant that people lived in closer proximity as compared to most of the natives in the Americas. These conditions bred more diseases, which killed a lot of people as children, and provided immunity to those Europeans who reached adulthood. Theory B. The people who were living in the Americas when Columbus arrived had come from Asia over a land bridge in what is now the Bering Strait. They crossed from Siberia into what is now Alaska, on foot. The theory is that this was truly survival of the fittest and that only the healthiest survived this arduous journey. And these healthy people were not carrying many, if any, diseases. Theory C. The Native Americans had very few domesticated animals. And those animals were few and far between and mostly limited to guinea pigs, llamas, and ducks. But the people in the Eastern Hemisphere had a lot of domesticated animals and there were large animals, including horses, cattle, pigs, and dogs. A lot of diseases are passed between animals and humans. So extended exposure to the domesticated animals 
built up immunities for many of these diseases. It might be a nice medical exercise to investigate why the Native Americans were so susceptible to European diseases and not the other way around, but whatever the reason, that was the way it turned out. The critical fact is that European diseases killed approximately 90% of the people who were living in the Americas in 1492. As far as we know, the only serious disease that went from the Western Hemisphere to the Eastern Hemisphere after 1492 was syphilis, although there are some doubts about that. Wiping out almost the entire population of two continents was certainly the biggest effect of Columbus coming to the New World. But let's look at some of the other results. The second major effect Columbus had on the Western Hemisphere was due to the animals brought by the Europeans. The introduction of pigs and cattle greatly changed the diets of people throughout the Americas. And some species proved to be invasive, even though they seemed innocent, like rabbits who ate a lot of crops over the years. But no animals caused as much change as the introduction of the horse to the Americas. Before the Europeans arrived, Native Americans did not have any beasts of burden. When they wanted to travel someplace on land, they walked. When they wanted to move something, it was human beings that carried those items. Horses multiplied across the entire Western Hemisphere. Eventually, the Native Americans were a lot more mobile and they could travel much greater distances. And horses could be used to carry lots of things like food, equipment, whatever was necessary. A third result of the Colombian exchange was also tragic. The approximately 10% of Native Americans who survived the epidemic of European diseases were called Indians for centuries because of Columbus's mistaken belief that he was in the Indies. That was wrong, but not catastrophic. The real tragedy was that these people had their lifestyles changed dramatically, with many of them becoming enslaved by the conquering Europeans. Most of the Native Americans who were enslaved were put to work in brutal conditions in the gold and silver mines. Now let's look at the effects on Africa from the Colombian Exchange. You already know what I'm going to say. By far, the biggest consequence on Africa was the resulting transatlantic slave trade, which resulted in millions of people sent to the Americas as human chattel. This horror resulted in stealing the lives of not only those Africans who were transported to the Western Hemisphere, but also their descendants for many generations. There were some minor benefits to Africa from the Colombian Exchange due to cassava and corn, two American crops which grew well in Africa and supplied nutritional needs for many people who might have starved otherwise. But in the grand scheme of things, this is so outweighed by the incredible devastation of the slave trade that I'm not going to bother going into any minimal good points for Africa from the Colombian Exchange. So let's talk about the outcome of the Colombian Exchange on Europe. The first result was the rise of new empires. For the first century or so after Columbus came to the New World, Spain benefited greatly with all the gold, silver, and other commodities pouring in from the Americas. Portugal also prospered with its enormous colony of Brazil, along with the other colonies that the Portuguese built in the parts of Africa that they subjugated. The French, and especially the English, would eventually surpass Portugal and Spain with their incredible empires. The second big change resulting from the Colombian exchange was that the center of power in Europe 
shifted from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic coast. Before Columbus showed Europeans how to get to the Americas, the center of commerce in Europe was the Mediterranean Sea. That is why Italian city-states like Venice were so rich and powerful. But after Columbus, it was much more important to be located on the Atlantic Ocean to be connected to overseas empires as well as the ability to trade with Asia. The third major transformation of Europe as a result of the Columbian Exchange was the biggest and longest lasting. This change resulted from the foods Europeans brought back from the Americas. Corn was a very stable crop which helped feed Europe. But by far, the biggest agricultural import was the potato. It might sound bizarre, but potatoes had an enormous effect on Europe and world history. There are two main reasons for this. A. Potatoes will grow in a lot of places that would be considered poor farmland. This is one reason why the Irish were so dependent upon potatoes at the time of the famine in the mid-1800s. They did not have a lot of good open farmland. And B. Potatoes produce more calories per acre than wheat which had been the staple crop that was primarily feeding Europe before Columbus first set sail. On average, potatoes produce over twice the number of calories per acre as wheat. So what does this mean? Roughly, it means that the same size agricultural region can now support more than twice the population. This resulted in a massive population increase in Europe. And this greater population could go on to other occupations besides farming. This accelerated the shift from feudalism to capitalism. This was one of the reasons for the progress of European societies and why Europe eventually dominated the world. Look at a globe or world map. Europe is a fairly small area compared to the rest of the world. It's not even really its own continent. It's just the western part of the Eurasian landmass. Yet from the 1500s until the end of World War II, Europe dominated the earth. I'm not saying this was necessarily a good thing. I'm just saying it was a fact. It's why European languages dominate so much of the globe. It's why so much of European culture still governs so much of the earth. And it led to bizarre circumstances when fights in Europe affected people in far-flung areas. An example would be in World War II. Nazi Germany invades and conquers France. In reality, the Germans only subjugated a small area of several hundred miles, but that small geographical conquest had far-flung effects throughout the world because of the French Empire. So it greatly changed the lives of people in Africa and Asia. As I just demonstrated, the Colombian Exchange had enormous and long-term changes to the world. But some people argue that the credit or blame for these drastic changes do not belong to Columbus. The main argument of these people is that if Columbus had not reached the Western Hemisphere in 1492, eventually somebody else from the Eastern Hemisphere would have done so and the same changes would have occurred. Not true. Here are four main reasons why this claim is false. Argument A. You can make that claim with any great innovation. Somebody else would have come up with the theory of relativity or invented the airplane or any other great discovery. So should we discount Einstein, the Wright brothers, or any other brilliant scientist or inventor? Argument B. What Columbus did was much harder 
than most people think. In the 1400s, sailors could determine their latitude, meaning how far north or south they were of the equator, but they could not determine their longitude, meaning how far west they had traveled from Europe. It took incredible navigational skills to sail those great distances in the open ocean in those days, as well as a lot of courage. When the Apollo 11 astronauts went to the moon, they knew where they were going and how far the journey was. Columbus did not. Columbus and his crew were sailing off into the unknown. Exploration on wooden ships was incredibly dangerous. Ships could be lost due to violent storms or by running into unknown islands or reefs in the middle of the night. And in those days, if your ship sunk, you went down with it. Nobody was going to save you. Argument C. People like to point out that Leif Erikson and possibly others had come to the Americas from the Eastern Hemisphere, but those trips to the Americas did not change the world. Columbus was the one to show mariners how to get to the Americas and, just as critical, how to get back to Europe. This is the aspect that changed the world. Argument D combines the two most important factors— that Columbus sailed on behalf of Spain, and that he accomplished his feat in 1492. These two factors shaped the world from Columbus's time through today. Here are those consequences that we still live with today. The first consequence is that everything in the Western Hemisphere south of the United States, except for Brazil and a few small exceptions like Suriname and French Guiana, speak Spanish. Because of the Spanish Empire, which began with Columbus's first voyage, Spanish is now one of the four most common languages spoken in the world, along with English, Mandarin Chinese, and Hindi. Some linguistic experts believe that in the future, more and more languages will eventually die out and the world will be reduced to a few dominant languages. I have no idea if that's true. But it does raise some easy examples of what might have been. If Columbus had sailed on behalf of his native Genoa or some other Italian city-state, would that language have become a dominant worldwide language like Spanish? Instead, Italian, the language of my maternal grandparents, may eventually become a dead language like its ancestor Latin. The second consequence that was unique to Columbus sailing for Spain in that year, 1492, is that European culture from the late 1400s to early 1500s was transplanted to the Americas. If Columbus did not sail when he did, and somebody else from the Eastern Hemisphere demonstrated the route to and from the Americas, perhaps a different culture would have taken hold throughout the Western Hemisphere instead of European culture from that time period. Who knows? Could have been somebody from Asia, Africa, we don't know. A third result attributable to Columbus and not some other unknown possible future explorer was the enrichment of Spain. Before 1492, Spain was a poor region and not even a unified country. The marriage of King Ferdinand II of Aragon to Queen Isabella of Castile in 1469 created a unified Spain for the first time since the Moors invaded in 711 CE. But this was a poor country. Columbus's exploration and the resulting Spanish Empire changed all of that. Now Spain became a world power which greatly affected European and world history up until the time of Napoleon. 
A fourth consequence of Columbus sailing on behalf of Spain in 1492 is religion. Most of the countries south of the United States are predominantly Catholic. This is a result of the Spanish and Portuguese empires. The Protestant Reformation began when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31, 1517, only 25 years after Columbus's first voyage. Would the Protestant Reformation and the resulting religious wars in Europe have played out differently if the Catholic side did not have the wealthy monarchs of Spain? We don't know how European history might have been different. This brings me to the fifth and by far most consequential result of the fact that it was Columbus sailing on behalf of Spain in 1492 as compared to some later unknown future explorer. The disparity of wealth between the countries founded by England, the U.S. and Canada, and the rest of the Western Hemisphere. Historians and economists debate why the U.S. and Canada are so much wealthier and stable politically than all of the countries south of the United States. Some argue that it was the societies set up by the British which were fairly self-governing. So when they became independent, the U.S. and Canada could more easily become functioning democracies. Spanish colonies had much less autonomy. When the Spanish colonies became independent, they did not have a history of how to govern themselves. So, if Columbus had not sailed for Spain, how would Mexico, Central America, and South America have developed? Would they have been wealthier with healthy democracies? Who knows? If another explorer at a later date and sailing on behalf of a country other than Spain had discovered the route to and from the Western Hemisphere, the history of the world might look very different today. So when people tell you that Columbus didn't matter because some other explorer would have eventually shown the way from the old world to the new world, you can cite the reasons I just listed. That's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast and please like this and my other episodes. Ratings and likes greatly help with the algorithms that determine the placement of podcasts on particular apps. So if you're listening on a podcast like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, which allow for ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. Please tell your friends, relatives, and coworkers about this podcast. Word of mouth is the best way to increase my audience. Check out my website, historyanalyze.com, where you will find links to my podcast episodes, as well as goodies for all of the history geeks out there like This Date in History, book recommendations, and historical sound bites. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.